John 11. We'll start at verse 38 in a minute. Okay. I've been involved in lots and lots and lots of uh, funeral services in my life. Uh, my life has, has transitioned in a way it, a lot. Uh, when I, in, in 1982 or so, I was serving as, an, as a general associate pastor of a, of a church in eastern Kentucky. And uh, the guy I was working with, the senior guy there, had uh, what was in those days a pretty rare surgery. He had a four-bypass heart surgery. We had to take him from, from you know, Ashland, Kentucky, all the way to Cleveland to get it done because not everybody did that in those days. It's kind of a startling thing. Well, you know, as luck would have it, I guess, while it seemed like while he was laid up, and he was laid up for, you know, like eight weeks, about half the church died. And uh, I had to learn to do funerals all of a sudden, you know. So that's kind of where it started. I was used to singing Amazing Grace at funerals, you know, but I, but I didn't have to officiate it until, until then. But it just seemed like, you know, that's not true, but, but it seemed like I did three or four in that six or eight week period. And, uh, and um, uh, so I'm, I've been around a lot of, of funeral services and, and kind of officiated it hundreds. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, uh, and, and you learn a lot of things about traditions um, in Eastern Kentucky. Central, Eastern Kentucky was a little different from Central Kentucky and both of them are really different from here. You know, we do kind of a visitation thing. Everybody kind of calls on the funeral home where the body is laid in state in the days leading up to a funeral service. And then everybody kind of comes to the funeral in Kentucky. They have, uh, typically, they'll have kind of a night, bef- the night before, they'll have kind of a, what they call a visitation thing. And, and then everybody comes to that, and then they come back to the service. You know, it's just kind of interesting. Um, they call on the family at the funeral home. and um, Anyway, it just seems like there's a little bit different regional traditions. Probably if you're from Illinois, it's a little bit different for you. If you're from Texas, it may be a little different. I don't know, probably mostly like what we do here. But um, um, there, there are traditions. Um, I've learned lots of things about, by being around that business and certainly about, um, about it from um, being a part of those things. Um, another guy that I worked with and I went way back in some holler, you know, one of those deals where you go you go past the third oak tree and turn left down the dirt road kind of thing to do a graveside service for a fellow, an old, older fellow that had died. And um, he was military. He had been in World War II, and, and uh, the, the uh, local um, VFW had arranged to have uh, kind of full military honors at, at the, at the uh, graveside service, which I was, I'm always impressed with that. I'm always moved by that. Um, and, uh, but on this particular occasion... Um, uh, while we were kind of, we kind of did most of the service, we were getting ready to wrap it up, and we turned it over to the military for a few minutes, and uh, they, um, it's the first time I'd ever been around a, a gun salute in, um, uh, during a funeral. But they really didn't cue us in on what was going on. They just said, we'll take care of that, and we'll let you know when we're done, and you can finish up. And uh, they didn't really let the family know. Well, we're in, you know, it's, Cold wintertime, we're sitting under one of these little awning things, and everybody's in folding chairs and on a piece of fake grass. You know, you know that deal. And it's kind of everything's kind of rickety, and and uh, but nobody told the family that they were going to shoot artillery. Okay, and um, so um, 
the, the little widow is sitting there with her family, and uh, including a, a couple of kind of wisecracking um, uh, grandchildren. And um, um, when, they sh- when they did the first volley of, um, of artillery, um, this little lady got startled. She, I mean, it's loud. She get, and falls over in her chair. One of the grandsons, not knowing what's going on either, says, Oh no, Dad, they've shot Granny. <laughs> Granny was fine. Granny was fine. That's actually not quite what the kids said. It's funnier in the original version, but I can't say it in public. So, yeah. Um... All right, now, that really did happen, I I think. I think, somewhere. Somewhere it happened. But now, so, we're going to go to um, a funeral service today, beginning with verse 38 in chapter 11 of John. Uh, And it's it's a close family to Jesus. Now, um, this is a household of siblings, Mary and Martha. You remember them, okay? Uh, You read about them in other places, but this is them, and this is their brother, Lazarus. Uh, They live in a place called Bethany, which is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, not on 39th Street near Oklahoma City, okay? This is a different place, although it's probably named after it. Um, um, It was on the the lower eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, and... uh, kind of across in the Kidron Valley. So to travel between Bethany and Jerusalem, a person would skirt the southern flank of that mountain and walk about two miles, okay? It was a kind of a common trip. Bethany was also located on, uh, you know, from that old gospel song, it was located on the Jericho Road, okay? On the Jericho Road. Okay, yeah, yeah. it was located on there. Uh, And um, so pilgrims from Galilee, which that's where... Uh, the disciples, most of them were from, and Jesus was from. The pilgrims from Galilee would often pass through the village of uh, Bethany as they made the final ascent from the valley of the Jordan River to Jerusalem. So it was a pretty, kind of a stop-off place, but it was a small town nonetheless. And um, we think, at least we're pretty sure, that Jesus may have used their home, the home of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, as kind of a, uh, a resting spot for himself. Yeah, I... I I had to think again this week, remembering that Jesus had no place to lay his head. He never owned a home. So he was dependent on people like this little family to uh, help him, uh, to give him the disciples a place to stay. He did that pretty often. Now, um, so he he had a lot of familiarity with these people. And... um, uh, Probably he was as close to these three people. I'm going to take a little stretch here. But he was probably as close or almost as close to these three people as he was to uh, his chosen 12, to the 12 disciples. He spent lots of time with these people. Probably the only people he spent more time with in his earthly lifetime was the 12. So you can kind of get how close they were. Now, um, When a person died in that time and place, you know, we were talking about traditions. When people died in that time and place, 
the um, burial of the body or the interment of the body had to follow very quickly. Embalming wasn't practiced by the Israelite nation. Uh, you can read about that in, in, uh, in Genesis 50 and, and around in there. It kind of gives us some of that detail. So um, a, a person who died would begin to decay really quickly and living in kind of an arid uh, place you can imagine that, that decomposition started taking place pretty rapidly and, and, um, and soon. Nonetheless, the body would be washed, typically, and wrapped in linen shrouds. Now, you can remember that uh, in, the, in uh, surrounding, in John 19, surrounding the burial of Jesus. If you remember, in fact, one of the concerns they had is he died on Friday, and they weren't able to kind of prepare his body for burial until Sunday. You remember that? That's what, why the women were rushing to the tomb as soon as they could on Easter Sunday morning. Okay? So they would, wrap, they would wrap the body with linen cloths and uh, put a towel of sorts around the head. And perhaps they would um, have spices and various sweet-smelling concoctions, including in those wrapping, wrappings, to make the kind of mitigate the bad odor. You can understand that. Now, after the body was placed in a ready tomb, they would have a tomb already hewn out of the rock. It wouldn't be a, a, a grave in the ground, but a rock in the uh, a place hewn out of stone. The entrance would be sealed using a stone carved for this purpose. It would roll down and kind of to a track. And so they'd seal it, and uh, that was kind of the end of the story, typically, except in John 11. Okay? Now, this part that we're going to talk about today is prefaced by what many of us may con construe to be a curious inaction. Jesus knows that Lazarus is ill. He received word in, in uh, the first two or three verses of the chapter. But without an apparent reason, Jesus delayed, arriving days after the internment. Um, now, Look at, just for a minute, look at 11.6. I'm going to set this up and then we're going to let Bob read our text here in a minute. Look at 11.6. It says, when he heard that he was sick, talking about Lazarus, he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was sick. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay. Now, look down at verse 17. This is when he arrives. So when Jesus came, he found he'd already been in the tomb four days. Okay, so uh, if you compare those, you realize that even if he had gone right then, Lazarus would probably have already died. Okay, I, I think if you compare those two verses, you can kind of get that little detail. Now, look, I want to take you two other places, then we're going to read our text. Look at verse 25. When he gets there, Martha kind of confronts him and says, why didn't you come earlier? Mary says the same thing. Look at verse 25. Really important verse of true scripture is 25, certainly 25 and a little bit of 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he asked her the question, do you believe this? Now, look at verse 37 which is right before where we're going to pick up the story. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? 
What's going on here? It's not skepticism. They, you really got to get the sense they believe he, he could do something. But the, the issue is here that they believe he could have done something, but the time has passed. Am I catching this right? Okay. Stan, see how this reminds me of what you and I talked about Charlene this morning. Um, can you parrot back to me what you said to me, what she said to you this week? Stan's sister who's undergoing treatment. I'm disappointed, but I know God loves him. I, I really kind of get some of that in here, but I also get a little chiding, honestly, from the two sisters who are saying, you know what, we believe you can heal, but it's too late for that now. Now, what I want you to kind of think about as a backdrop on this is the issue that faith here precedes a miracle. He says, do you believe and Martha says, I believe, but her understanding is, is cloudy. It's not, and it's, it's affected by her grief. Okay? Now, Bob, if you would, pick up at verse 38 and read down through 40. Okay, now, John 1.14, right at the beginning of this gospel, tells us that we, can, we beheld, John says, I, we, beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that there was glory in Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh, is what John is saying. But in this story, we see, really, I think the depth, maybe the breadth, of his humanity. He was also human. Uh, okay, let me, let me teach you. If, if you've never memorized scripture before, I'm gonna, before you leave Sunday school today, you will have one verse committed to memory. You ready? John 11.35. Okay? Now, if you can remember that, remember that reference, John 11.35, Jesus wept. <laughs> Shortest verse in the Bible. And here it is in context. Why did he cry? Why did he weep? He's moved because he lost a friend. He's moved. By the way, he knows what he's going to do. He's going to change this whole story. But he's moved at their grief. Isn't that important? I, I, I love this about him. Their pain became his. You think Jesus cares about what you go through? I hope you do. Because he does. Cindy. It was coming. It was coming. Oh, yeah. This is the beginning of all that, by the way. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the issue is here. Here's all these people grieving. It was appropriate for him to be moved by their grief. Okay? He was human. Now, he says, 
Martha, have him roll the stone away. Now, um, Martha is not eager to grant this request. Do you notice that? What's her answer to him? Don't do that. And she says some pretty graphic things about it. The, the word stench is used in, in my translation that I'm, I'm reading from. She's not. Uh, this could be construed by some as desecration. Do you want to be guilty of that? Four days decomposition. We talked about that before. Now, look at verse 21. What are the limits of Martha's faith? I'm, I'm going to overplay this card, but I think it's important. Look at verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, you'd been here. My brother would not have died. Okay, probably Mary's got a better, remember she chose the better thing when Jesus came to visit them once before. Probably Mary's got a better approach to it, right? Look at verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They both have a common experience here and a common take on their pain, don't they? The limits of their faith are similar. I find that intriguing, seeing that Martha and Mary, we've already seen depicted in other pieces of Scripture, were so different in their approach to faith. Martha and Mary both believed, according to their testimony here in verse 21 and again in verse 32, they believed in Jesus' power to heal only. Despite, and I put the references on your page, we won't run them now, but you can run them from... um, um, Uh, John 8 and Luke 7, despite them being aware of Jesus' previous resurrections. The son of the widow at Nain um, and um, Jairus' daughter, okay? Both of them, you know, he would say to them, uh, she's not dead, she's sleeping, but but that meant she was dead. He resurrected them. Bob? I think you're right. Isn't it interesting? I know he's done this for you, but why? I don't know that he'd do that for me. Uh, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just this limited focus. And now, So they know he has done resurrections before. Now, there is a difference. He's never done a four days later resurrection. Different deal, okay? He's never done it. He's never, not that we know, not that it's recorded in the scriptures. He's not resurrected someone who was in the tomb. And the question is, can he? And Mary and Martha don't have any concept that he can. Okay, I, I don't think, at least in context here. Now, I read this this week. See what this speaks to you. Each of life's unexpected turns is an opportunity to trust Jesus. Can I say that again? I didn't write it. Wish I had. Each of life's unexpected turns is an opportunity to trust Jesus. Not how did you trust him 20 years ago, not how did you trust him day before yesterday, but am I going to trust him in this one? And can I tell you something? This is not going to be encouraging, okay? If you're not going through it now, you probably will. Okay? Patrick, you had no idea you'd be going through what you're going through six months ago probably, did you, pal? Each... 
issue that I go through, each unexpected turn in the road is an opportunity to once again trust Jesus. Am I going to do that? Now in verse 40, which Bob already read, what did Jesus say Martha would see due to her faith? The word I want to use here is glory. She would see his glory revealed. Now we talked last week we talked about you when you weren't here. So you need to start showing up at school because we'll talk about you when you're not here. <laughs> she had other things going on, but uh, yeah. John, oh, John 2, last week, the, the wedding in Cana was the first miracle. We could argue, uh, I, I'm, I'm chewing on this in my head. We could argue this is the final and most dramatic miracle of Jesus' public life. Okay, Joseph, I, I know, I know. There was the, if Peter cut off the guy's ear, he put it back on. Yeah, I know all that, but, but, um, okay. Okay, so I don't know what you're looking at me for, but I, but I get it. But this, this is the most dramatic. It's toward the end of his public, public life. Uh, John 2 was the beginning of all those miracles. And you remember last week we said what the miracle did, the creation of the wedding, of the wine at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee, is it revealed his glory. Guess what? It's going to be revealed big time in John 11. Okay, Bob? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, uh, and I'll have to look. Well, okay, I, I'm going to get back to that because I want to study that. But it really is the glory of God. It's a big deal. It's like, and we beheld his glory uh, John 1.14. So, okay, now, the miracles have revealed his glory, and here's the biggest one yet. Someone in a tomb. Now, let's go on from here, if we can. Uh, Bob, can I come back to you and read 41 down through 44? glory. Okay, let's, let's back up. We, we don't know that yet, though. We're still in verse 41. Okay, Jesus says to Martha in verse 40, remove the stone. And Martha says, eh, I don't know if we want to do that or not. Right? But evidently something convinces her. Uh, it may have been, uh, you remember one of those, uh, Hubert, you probably sang No Greater Love, a cantata by John Peterson back in the day. Remember there was a song in there called His Wonderful Look of Love. Do you remember that one? This was probably that look. He probably looked at her and she said, guys, move the stone. It took several men to move this stone, a large stone out of a track hewn out of the rock in front of the, in front of the tomb. It, they might have had to use levers to get it out of there. It took a while. She says, remove the stone. And in the meantime, Jesus praise out loud so it can be heard what I'm going to call here a confident prayer a confident prayer now let's go to 519 
Somebody read 519 for us. Notice as he prays the relationship that is implied between him and the Father. Father, I know you hear me. He's going to say in 519 and in lots of other places, he's going to say that he can't do anything that the Father wouldn't also be about doing. Why? Because they're one and the same. That's going to be a big issue. That's going to be a recurrent theme in this miracle, really. And, and the second thing I want you to think about is this is not spontaneous. This is not, okay, let me bring him back to life. It, it, no. He's been thinking about this for four days, probably. Or at least a couple of days since he's gotten the word, right? I, I believe he knows what he's going to do because of what he said when they try to summon him there to begin with. He's been thinking, this is, this is planned, I think. And so when he prays to the Father, he knows what's getting ready to happen. He prays confidently with that. And yet he prays out loud in verse 42. It kind of gives us the, the picture here. He prays out loud. You've got to kind of catch this. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it. So they may believe that you sent me. So the idea here is that... A couple of things are going on here. First of all, he's got more than what you need to put in that first blank here. He's got more than one purpose for the prayer. First of all, prayer is always communication with the Father. Always. And that's certainly what he's doing here. By the way, if Jesus, who was the walking, living, breathing Son of God, needed to communicate with his Father, how much more do you and I need to? He set the pattern. But I need it worse than he did. Bob? Through this whole thing, I keep seeing the fact that regardless of how we are, how much we think we stink, God can bring us back to life through him. That's good. That's good. And I've been pretty stinky at times in my life, have you? Yeah. All right, now, communication with his father is one purpose. The other purpose is the understanding of the people standing around him, it says. He wants them to know, Father, you and I are one. He is one with the Father. He wants them to know that believing in the Son is also believing in the Father. You can't have one without the other. And so he, he's saying these things, praying them out loud. And then verse 43 is a very, very important moment. We've got to see it. The prayer, look at it while I talk about it for a minute, okay? Verse 43. The prayer is over. The stone has been moved. The crowd has, which was full of mourning and all kinds of noise, has suddenly just hushed. Got to catch that? The air has gone out of the room. They're not in the room, but the air has gone out of the room. Okay? It's hushed. All eyes are riveted on him in the opening of this tomb, the opening of this uh, cave tomb. This would be the most important moment in Jesus' public life to this point. To this point. 
like last week's miracle, the first one, there were no incantations, no mumbo-jumbo. Only a very loud voice calling one name. By the way, some have reasoned that he called La- the three words he used, Lazarus come forth, were all three important because if he had not said Lazarus come forth, everybody else would have come out of the grave. <laughs> I like that thought, don't you? That was the power that was exhibited here. Three words spoken loudly, Lazarus come forth. Look at 521 just for a minute. Here's what he says. 521. For just as a father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whomever he wishes. It's important here that they know that if he so desires, if it's within God's agenda, he can raise the dead, and so he did. Now, in verse 44, kind of a, 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 kind of a weird thing happens. Let me read it to you. Um, it's kind of, you got to put yourself in the place again. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. He is... He is He's wrapped hand to feet. Can't see. Jesus is the only one that's got the presence of mind to say, unwrap this guy. You know? He unwraps him. Uh, you kind of got to catch this. Consider this dramatic moment. The crowd is breathless. They don't know what to do. And so Jesus says, turn this guy loose. Now, here's what you got to hear next. You ready? I know this happened. As they unwrap him, and they wait to see if Lazarus can speak. He finally speaks. And you know what he said? Everybody's leaning in. What's the guy that's been dead for four days going to say? And they lean in and he says, I told you I was sick. <laughs> that's in there somewhere. I... Now, Look at verse 45. There's some things that ensue here. Therefore. Why does it say therefore in there? Because whatever came before it is what it's there for. Okay, yeah, so all this happened, therefore. <laughs> therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. There were people there just comforting Mary who said, okay, I believe. How could you not believe? Many believed. But some of them, I find this intriguing, verse 46. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is going to cause all kinds of things to happen here. Lazarus presents a problem. He becomes a real problem. Uh, not only now, but for years to come, he'll say, yeah, I know you're saying this, but I'm the guy that was dead for four days, okay? 
He's just a problem. For the rest of Jesus' public ministry, uh, uh, which is only a few days left, he'll show up and Lazarus will be with him and it's like, eh, we got to do something about this. That guy's a real problem. So many believed. Look at chapter 12. I'm going to read just a couple of verses here. The large crowd, verse 9, the large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there, but they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Look at uh, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. I'm going to submit to you that there would have been no triumphal entry had it not been for John 11 when, uh, when Lazarus was brought out of the tomb. The reason people were shouting... And come, lining wasn't just because of the king coming to claim, uh, you know, his city. It was literally, uh, he was coming into Jerusalem for the first time since Lazarus was raised from the dead. And that's a big deal. Everybody wanted to see him. So, many believed. Others, look at verse 10 in chapter 12. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Others plotted. They not only now are going to kill Jesus, but they're going to kill his buddy, who's just a problem. But in the meantime, Lazarus lived. And it was a problem. Lazarus lived. Oh, yeah, he died again. But Jesus did not. Now, here's tradition. Okay, this is not in the Bible. It's tradition. Traditions claim that Lazarus eventually became a bishop on the island of Cyprus, and uh, that his remains are still in the church of St. Lazarus in this city in, in uh, Larnaca on that island. This is referred to, don't you love this? This is referred to as the second tomb of Lazarus. He didn't need his first one again. The final resting place for his body after his second death. Wherever his final resting place the account of his raising in John 11 points to the hope of his permanent resurrection on the final day. It points to ours as well. Martha held on to this hope even after the untimely death of her brother. We got to hang on to it when we lose a loved one as well. Here's what Jesus said to Martha, and here's how I'll close. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll also live. And then he asked her this very pointed question. And I think he's asking you. Do you believe this? It's in red in your Bible. Verse 26, chapter 11. Do you believe this? His closest friend, he had a challenge of faith. One of his closest friends. Because the depth of her grief was so extreme. And her faith was limited to what Jesus could do while somebody was alive, not after they were dead. Now here's what I want to ask you. What would it mean to you and me today if we really took him at his word that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this? Would you let that question pour over your soul this week? Okay? And we're going to see next week kind of how it all 
uh, is incorporated into Old Testament law and, um, and certainly the Passover celebration. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you next Sunday.